Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to Romans 1. Uh, we won't get there for a while. This is eventually where we're going to end up. And I'll be flipping through the Bible and a couple different passages as we get there. Today will be the first part um, of a six-part topical series on the gospel and then its ramifications for church life, for us as believers and what it means for our corporate identity. Uh, of course, it will by no means be uh, thoroughly exhaustive, but we do believe as, believer, as, as elders especially that this will be instructive for us as we strive to be true disciples of our Lord Jesus together. So today, we'll start with the gospel, what is it? And then, over the next five weeks, we'll cover the topics of baptism, church membership, the Lord's Supper, uh, Christian community, and then lastly, every member as a minister. Um, so we want to come to these subjects. Again, this is topical preaching. We're taking this to the text and saying, what does it say about it? We want to take this, though, and we come to it with humility and a readiness to hear so that we can be shaped by the Word, not us shape the Word how we want it to look. So with that in mind, I would ask you again to bow your hearts with me, to ask that God would make us fertile ground and that he would have his way with us. Let's pray real quick. God, we come to you in utter dependence, in submission, in hearts that know that they are prone to wander. Help us now to bow to your will and your way. Would you help us to have hearts ready to receive and rejoice in your good words for us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's start with a question here today. How do we enter into the church? Now, the snarky ones among you I know are going to be like, well, through the front doors, Chris, or the back doors, or something like that, we walk in. But you know what I'm talking about here. Specifically, we're talking about that the Bible teaches that the church is not the building, but or even a service, it is the people. It is those who are truly Christians that make up the church. But that begs the question, what is a true Christian? What constitutes a person who's a believer? Um, if the church is made up of them, we ought to know what a Christian really is. Uh, is there a difference between someone who calls himself a Christian and someone who doesn't call themselves a Christian? Or is it just kind of a social matter of like a lifestyle change that someone kind of lives a better way than another person? There's one question that will help us get to the heart of this matter. The question is this, how do we relate to God? So real existential, right? How do we, though, as human beings, relate to God? But to properly answer this question, it's probably a foregone conclusion that we need to know who God is first. So let's ask that question, who is God? I want to bring out two thoughts here for us today. Number one, God is creator. Uh, if any of you have ever been on any sort of a Bible reading plan, you at least got the Genesis 1-1. So let me read that one for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
As we read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Genesis here, we realize that there was a time that there was nothing but God. All the stuff that we know, all the stuff that we experience, every being and thing and system at one point was not. Like it didn't exist. Like it wasn't there at all. And that means at a point in time, he created from the dirt that we walk on to come inside the building to the air that we breathe right now, he made it. From the heights of the great mountains up here on our earth to the water that fills the deepest recesses of the surface of our planet, he made it. From the largest animals down to the smallest bacteria, he made it. Or how about light? For a moment, I want to take you on a little journey. Uh, let's say we're in my house, we're, we're, we're hanging out, it's, it's, it's becoming nighttime, and we hear some dripping under the house. We're like, oh no. Hopefully, we don't, we don't want this to be a huge problem. So you come over with me, we both have headlamps on, and we go underneath my house in our crawl space, and we get down there, and we find that there was just something else that was dripping, and there was no problem. Everything was fine. Thank God, it was great. We kind of moved out. I said, before you do that, let's turn off our lights and, and, and feel the darkness. And you turn off the light, and it's already darkness outside, but now you're in this enclosed space, and it is pitch black in there. Some of you may have done something like this. Maybe you're at Luray Caverns or someplace where you experience for a, for a time a point in time darkness. But suspend our own reality for a minute and think back before creation, there was no such thing as light. Nothing. There was no such thing except God himself. And at a point in time, God creates light. Like that's all we know. How about this one? Uh, water. You can think about the Gobi Desert or the Sahara, maybe some other very dry places on our globe. Um, or like my skin in the middle of winter gets very dry. Even then, we only know a world that has water as a major part of it, right? The waters come, the waters go. We understand all that stuff. But consider for a moment, there was a time when there was no water at all. There was no water, no H2O. There's no H, there's no 2, there's no O. There was no, it, was, it, was, it was nothing except God himself. In other words, when we talk about creation and God, there really is only two categories. Category one, God. Category two, everything else. Do you realize that there's no neutral ground that like God entered into this place and then he's like, oh, and now I'll make this thing. Everything that we know was made by God. All kinds of stuff, whether we know it or we don't, he made it all. He makes mountains and valleys and oceans Stars and planets and air, animals, makes plants, outer space, molecular level organization, and everything in between. God made it all. And at the pinnacle of his creation work, he makes man. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Before we know any of God's attributes, before we learn anything about his character, we are introduced to this God as creator, the one who made everything. We find that nothing, nothing is autonomous. We find here not one system, 
Not one process, not one neutral matter, not one thing, not one person. Nothing is independent of God. Everything in the universe, bland and exciting, animate and inanimate, good and evil, all of it is accountable to its maker, the God of the Bible, the God of creation. None of God's creation gets to make its own rules. All of it is subject to his rule and reign, whether it acknowledges it or not. This, then, has implications for us. The fact that he is the sole creator means something for us as created ones. Consider this. It especially means something for those who were made in his image, those who were given the task and the responsibility to rule over creation under the kingship of God, all according to his rule and his reign. In a word, we're accountable to God. We're accountable to our maker. He is creator, and therefore he has creator rights over all of us. This is the first thing we need to reckon with when we ask the question, who is God? He is creator. But let's consider a second way. Not only is he creator, but when we ask the question, who is God? We need to wrestle with this. Number two, God is holy, righteous, and just. Now, this should come as no surprise if you've ever been through the, you know, the doors of a church. You know this to be true about God if you've read the Bible. But let me just take off a few of these. Psalm 11:7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 33:5. He loves righteousness and justice. In Habakkuk 1:13, the prophet calls God the holy one and bases his whole argument and request on the fact that God is of purer eyes than to see evil, that he cannot look on wrong. Psalm 89, 14, you know this one? We learn that the righteousness, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. We don't have much difficulty recognizing and believing then, if we look at Scripture, that our God is holy, righteous, and just. One of the earliest and clearest statements that God makes about himself is found in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. You guys have heard me use this before. It's become one of the dearest to me to see our God. But I'm going to read it again. He says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, we all love those first explanations. I mean, come on, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And praise God, awesome are your works, O Lord, to do these things. But we cannot forget about this last very important statement. Who will by no means clear the guilty? he will not clear those who are guilty before him. Now, when you read that, doesn't all those, don't all those first explanation descriptions seem strange in light of that last one? I mean, how in the world can he, on the one hand, forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, and then on the other hand, say that he will not clear the guilty? It is at this very point that some of us choose to go awry in our thinking about who God is. Because in our own thoughts, we can't make much sense of this. The last phrase is key to understanding the biblical gospel. And it is key to understanding that God is a complex, perfect being. 
that he doesn't take some of his attributes and just not worry about them. He does these things at one point, and then he moves over to these attributes and does these things at this time. He doesn't suspend part of his character. He is God in perfection. God is a God of steadfast love, mercy, kindness. But at the same time, he is holy, righteous, and just. He will not, he, he cannot allow sin to go unanswered. He will not, and he cannot sweep it under the rug as if it's okay. The sin of all creation. I think we often think of God as the God of those wonderful positive attributes. Um, he just kind of looks the other way when sin comes along. We're, or he's kind of like a bad janitor, and he kind of sweeps it under the rug out of his vision. And so that's kind of how he just puts it away. He doesn't have to deal with it, but he kind of gets it out of the way so it looks okay. Exodus 34 and other places too in the scriptures though make it very clear that God is gracious, merciful, and full of steadfast love but that he at the same time is righteous, holy, just and that he will not clear the guilty. He must deal with sin. This helps us shed the belief that God is somehow this um, Santa Claus all-powerful character of jolliness and niceness. He's not. He is not that version of God, our making, as though somehow he is someone so kind and loving, he's more than willing to look over all of our problems. He's like, oh, it's okay, you little humans, it's all right. We're just going to look over all of that. That thought is unbiblical. And worse than that, that thought is damning. If this is our thought about who God is, we are denying what he says to be true about himself. And we take this then, this position, that sin just isn't a big deal. But remember what it's founded on, the character of God being violated and rejected. The God of the Bible is a righteous and just creator. So this leads us to ask the question, how do we relate to God then? If God is holy, righteous, and just... If he alone is creator and has these creator rights over all of his creation, including us... If we are accountable to him, do we have a problem before God because of the way that we've acted? Are we in trouble with him? And if so, what does that mean for us? Since God himself brings up the category of people called the guilty, how do we know who these people are? I mean, what makes someone guilty? If you're following along so far, uh, you'll quickly put together that it's a pretty simple answer. Um, if God is the perfect king with all the rights, and if he owns us, then any rejection of God at all puts us at odds with him, and therefore we are found to be guilty. Think about this word. Those creatures, the created ones, who have rebelled against their creator are guilty. Anyone who rejects God, his rules, his care, his authority, his right to reign over our lives. Anyone who rejects God, any part of God, is guilty, and God will not clear him. Our first father, Adam, he did not arbitrarily eat a piece of fruit. It wasn't a mistake, or it wasn't a not a big deal. It wasn't just about the fruit eating this thing. He chose to reject God to reject his rules, his care for him, his authority. He believed that he could be independent of God. And in this act, he rejected him 
and became guilty of sin. Think about the cosmic treason that was committed at this point. The God who had given him everything his heart could desire said, don't eat this. And he says, I don't need to listen to God. I will eat this. God had made provision for every single thing. It was utter foolishness. It was wicked. It was rebellion. But it wasn't just Adam and Eve who chose to reject God. I did. You did. The Bible shows us also that it's not just about doing individual sins. Although that may seem like a big deal, especially as they start to add up. It's far worse than that. We are sinful to the core of our beings. There's not like some good stuff and some bad stuff in us. We just want all the good stuff to it. No, 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 no. The Bible talks about us as wretches in our sin. A few sins here and there, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But then we read Romans 7, 18, and we realize that no good thing dwells in me. Or Ephesians 2, 3, and talks about our nature. We start out to realize that we are by nature children of wrath. Every bit of us deserves the wrath of God to be poured out. We realize that it's a wicked heart that's the problem. It's a corrupt producer of every intention and action that is not submitted to God as king. Paul's very clear about this. Yes, certainly the actions are sinful, but the real problem of sin is us. Every action is tied to us at our will and our core against God. In Ephesians 2, he shows us it's so bad that we're dead. He says that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Our condition is so bad that there's not one flicker of hope or light inside of ourselves. It's all against God. We're dead and dark in our rebellion against this gracious, merciful, and loving God. It's not just some of us either. You know this. Paul makes it clear in Romans 3.23. The problem is for every human in every part of history. He says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In verse 10, he makes it even clearer. None is righteous. Not even one. Nobody. None is righteous. Then he later teaches us in Romans 5 that Adam plunged all of us into this death and that we are born in sin, shaking our fists against our Creator from the very beginning of our lives. We want the same thing Adam wanted, autonomy, independence, the opportunity to do whatever we want to do with no consequences. It's not our world. We're just like our Father. And, as we've got real practical, I wouldn't do this, but if we were to go around to each person in this room and measure you and I up against the Scriptures, God's law, every one of us would be guilty, even of our own admission. Sure, I mean, according to our own rules, we might look pretty good. I've set these rules, I kind of do this, I don't do those bad things over here, I just do these things, you know, this is kind of stuff that, I, you know, I, I don't do that stuff. Or even worse, let's look at other people around us. I mean, you, you watch the news, look at the internet. Oh man, I don't deal with any of that wickedness over there. I live a pretty, a pretty good life, a pretty good, clean lifestyle. That would account for something. But set against the perfect righteousness demanded by the character of God and the rebellion against who he is as our maker, the one who owns us, you and I haven't got a chance we are the guilty. Everyone. From the vile rapist or the gruesome murderer all the way down to the goody two-shoes who's never even thought about a curse word. 
Every last one of us is guilty before God. And so, in this state, we find ourselves in our sin standing against the creator of the, and the king of the universe. And he cannot, he will not clear those who are guilty. Now, what does this mean for those who are guilty? It means that God will judge and pour out his wrath on those who stand in their sin against him. This is terrible news. This is awful. This is horrifying. This means that the God that we talked about earlier that has the power enough to speak light and water into existence will one day take that power and pour his wrath out on sinners who have rejected him. And he will judge them who have not repented and they stand against God in their sin. The Bible talks about hell, a place of unquenchable fire, a place of torment and judgment. This is no figment of my imagination or Christians trying to scare people into joining the Jesus Club. What a terrible way to do it. This is based on understanding that there must be an answer for sin, for those who have rejected and committed treason and rebellion against a perfect, loving, and gracious God. This is a place where God will judge all those who do not recognize him as creator and king and the gracious giver of everything. This is the fate of all the guilty ones. But how could God possibly be like this and still be called gracious, loving, merciful, and, and one who shows steadfast love? How can he be righteous, holy, and just, and yet forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin? This is impossible that he could do this. If you and I and everyone has violated his law, rejected his care, authority, and reign, and if he cannot clear the guilty ones, how can he possibly extend grace, mercy, forgiveness, and steadfast love to anyone if we are all guilty? In this current equation, there is no hope for us. We deserve every bit of judgment. But God. God being rich in mercy and great love has made a way to save and rescue and forgive sinners. He has done this in such a way that he is still holy, righteous, and just. He has devised a plan wherein our sin does not get swept under the carpet, and yet we receive forgiveness and love and mercy. How? How is such a thing possible? He does it through something called penal substitutionary atonement. Say that three times fast. These are big words, but they are so glorious that we ought to use them. They are right. There is a way for sinners to be rightly forgiven, atoned for. It is through someone else perfectly substituting themselves for the offender. We've seen this idea surface in shades and kinds throughout the scriptures before, a way that God works that allows for substitution. We saw it when God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve after they had sinned, killing animals and using their skins to cover their nakedness. We saw it back in Egypt when the Passover lamb was killed and its blood was painted on the doorposts and it stood as a representative dying in the place of the firstborn. 
so that they might be saved. In Joshua, we saw Achan, who stand, who stood as a representative being punished so that the rest of Israel does not experience the severe wrath that God was about to pour out on them in their midst. And of course, if you're reading along with Keep the Feast and you just finished up Leviticus, this huge book showing us the entire sacrificial system built on the understanding that one could substitute. The bull, the goat, the lamb is killed. It's lifeblood poured out and the people find atonement in this act of faith. We've seen the glory of God ordaining substitutionary atonement for punishment. But all the things that I just listed, they're never enough. They were not sinless. They weren't, some of them were not human. They were certainly not eternal. Their death could never take the place of billions of people throughout history. <coughs> the sacrifices had to be offered. <coughs> The sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. For God to be just and for him to rescue us from judgment, our sin had to be dealt with correctly. A substitute, a proper substitute, had to take our place. A perfectly righteous substitute, one who was not guilty, one who was not a created thing. One who could bear all of the horrible wrath of God and live to destroy sin so that it, we could have salvation. We needed someone who was untainted by sin. We needed someone who was 100% human like us to properly take our substitution, our, our place. But we also needed someone who was 100% divine, untouched by the curse, one who had not committed sin. Who could ever be this person. From the rumblings of creation to considering how our entire universe is held together by the word of his power, there is one who qualifies to do what must be done. The one slain from the foundations of the earth, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah and King. He alone is able and worthy. Isaiah shows that the suffering servant here, not Israel, not a prophet, not someone else, the suffering servant, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, would take our place. Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior King. He is fully God and fully man. He is the Messiah long waited for. He is the King of the universe. And he is the suffering servant who stood in our place and received our punishment, the chastisement, the judgment of God. In Jesus Christ, God made a way. And in this way, God proved to be both just and the justifier the loving, forgiving, gracious one who offers the hope of salvation. By the way, he didn't stay dead. 
He proved to be exactly who he said he was and what he needed to be. He rose from the dead, delivering a death blow to Satan, sin, and death. Satan couldn't beat him. I mean, sin had no power over him. And death could not keep him in the grave. He is alive. This is real. He's actually still alive. It is only through him and him alone that the wrath of God could be satisfied. There can be salvation in no other name. Not in our good works. Not in, being, in doing the things that Jesus did. That's not going to do it. Not by trusting another saint to help us. They were sinners just like us. It doesn't matter if it's Mary or Paul or anyone. They cannot help us. Salvation comes only through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the Savior King who alone can satisfy the wrath of God. Now this is great news. This means that there's hope. This means that there's salvation available for us. This means it's possible for sinners to be reconciled to God. This is glorious. This means that salvation is possible. But we still haven't answered the question, right? How do we relate to God? This comes back to the very beginning. What we've talked about the whole time, these facts are true. God is righteous creator. Man is sinful, rebellious, accountable to him. Jesus suffered the wrath of God to be our Savior King. These are all glorious truths. However, the fact is that they are true doesn't mean that salvation is now universal to mankind. No. There must be a response from you and me to this great act of redemption. And it must be the response that God requires. Not what other people think we should do. Not what we think we should do. Not what we can, all the best logic can come up with the way we're supposed to respond. It must be on his terms. Now to some of us, this is a no-brainer. We get it. We understand it. But there are some that this thought of a lack of autonomy, the thought that another person made me, gave everything to me, redeemed me, and owns every right to me and my allegiance is disgusting. They want nothing to do with it. They would rather be independent, a self-made person, accountable to no one. No, this is not a no-brainer. This is very important that we hear the scriptures and how they tell us how we ought to respond. It's very clear and simple. Faith and repentance. And this is not faith and repentance defined by you and me. This is faith that trusts God, trusts God as Savior and King alone. This is a faith that relies on Him and nothing else for the judgment day. This is a faith that says, I am relying on Christ, Jesus alone, His work alone to give me the righteousness that I need. God cannot have any unrighteousness in His presence. I need righteousness. I need the positive gift of righteousness to me. And we have the substitutionary atonement where Jesus took it every wicked thing that we'd ever done and gave us his righteousness alone. Because all the good stuff that I do or anyone else does, it will only condemn us. There's filthy rags. It cannot help us stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Only perfection, righteousness can stand before God. This is the faith that we talk about. Trusting him and him alone. And we talk about repentance. We talk here about seeing oneself as wicked and in desperate need of forgiveness, of sin, because we see that every sin is a direct attack on our glorious, righteous creator. It recognizes who he is 
And it recognizes that all the things that we do that are not in submission to him are wicked. Repentance that begins to hate sin. It doesn't want to continue on. That does not mean that we are perfect. But it does mean that we've chosen a side. That we do not want to continue on that stinking, rotten sin. And we know it is a front to God. And we hate it. And we begin to say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. That does not mean that we will be perfect. We know that. But we do understand that we've chosen a side. And we choose daily, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.13, to mortify the deeds of the body and to put to death these sins. This is the response required by God. This is the position, then, of the believer, the Christian. This is what it means to properly relate to God. And this is what it means, then, to enter into the church. Now, after we've done the hard work of traveling through the story of God, let's go to Romans 1 and see Paul's presentation of how we ought to relate this. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to preach another whole sermon. I'm actually just going to take this thing that we've already talked about and trace it through. There are four parts. If you want to know anything about how to think about the gospel, you need to think about these four parts. God, man, Christ, response. So those are the four things. You want to write them down? It's easy. You've got to reckon with who God is. You've got to reckon with man. You've got to reckon with Christ. And you have to have a response. So think about these things. God, the righteous creator we already talked about. Man, the accountable sinner who's rejected God. Christ, the Savior King, and our response, faith and repentance. This is what I'm going to do. Look at Romans 1, and we're going to kind of go from 1, 1, 3, and 3. You're going to see it here. We're going to go for four little spots. We're going to see God as righteous creator with creator rights in Romans 1, 18. Let me read it for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God owns all. He has been made known to all of creation. Man understands that this thing, even though he may suppress it. But then the next thing, look at verse 21 through 23. So we talk about God, the righteous creator. Now look at this, man, the accountable sinner. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Understanding that all things that are not God, including yourself, is an idol. Everything there showing that when you either listen to or obey anything else but God, you have made yourself better than him and you've rejected his rule and reign. Look at Romans 3.21 now. So we talk about God, the righteous creator, man, the accountable sinner, Christ, the Savior. Look at verse 21. I'm going to skip a little bit. Just follow along. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Skip a little bit. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Salvation can only be, look at verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
This gospel story, guys, is not my invention. It's not the church's invention. It is God himself. And Paul's given this whole thing, and let's look at the last thing. You've already seen it drip through here. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who do what? Believe. The response cannot be one of who cares or okay, I believe that happened. No, the response is faith in Jesus as Savior King, the one that trusts him and him alone. This is the path we must be familiar with if we want to understand the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, man, Christ, and our response. It is not about believing your version of the Jesus story and hoping hard enough, really hoping hard, that you can get yourself into heaven that way. If I just believe the facts about the gospel, I'm good. This is completely different than that. All of these show us the glorious truth that God has made a way for rebels to have salvation and enter the kingdom of God. The good news is this. The good news is that God has made a way for those who stand in sin hopelessly against him and his righteous character to be forgiven and saved from this divine judgment that they deserve while he still remains righteous and just. He gives salvation from judgment to those who repent of their sin and put all their trust in the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ the King. Friend, you can have forgiveness and salvation and experience steadfast love of the Lord. Repent. Turn from your sin and wickedness and trust King Jesus alone who can save you from your sin. Believer, this is not just for unbelievers. This is our gospel story. It's our story. It's our hope. It's our constant joy and fountain of grace. This king is our crucified, risen, seated, and coming again king. The gospel is a defining moment of all of history for us. Without it, we have absolutely no hope. When we consider who we are and who we were, and to consider the great love of the Lord to chastise his only son in our place, we must say, glory. There is no one like our God that he would give himself for us like this. It should be fuel on the fire of our worship to who he is. Praise and glory to our God. No one else could do this. Not ourselves, not like the, the whole of mankind summing up all the courage to die for one person. No, no one could even do it. God did it in his righteousness and justice and his great love. All praise to God on high. May our king receive our lives then as a sacrifice of praise. What does the gospel teach us? At the beginning, we talked about this great problem. How can he be the one that's just, not clearly guilty, and still be one with steadfast love and forgiveness? Consider as I close Romans 3.26. Just listen. I want you to catch this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so in Christ the gospel, we find that God is both holy, just, and righteous, and loving, and forgiving. 
and a God who will not clear the guilty, but has poured it out on his only son, Jesus, so that we might be reconciled to the Father. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great grace. We love you because you first loved us. When we consider this story, Lord, there's no other response either to hate you or to fall down and worship and repent of our wicked sin and to trust you, Jesus, alone. We cannot bring ourselves to you cleaned up, righteous, doing a bunch of good stuff, Lord. We have offended you in a cosmic way. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to our account. And Lord, we thank you for your great love that you could both be just and the justifier of those who trust Christ. Would you work in our midst for those who do not know you, who have been fooled into thinking that they know Jesus and have not bowed the knee, have not repented of their sin, and have not trusted Jesus over everything else. Lord, would you do a work by your Holy Spirit's power to save them. For us as believers, God, who love you, I ask that you would further throw the fuel on the fire of our passion to honor and glorify and love you. That we might see the world around us not as a, the way that the world sees, but rather, Lord, a sacrificial way for us to give up the life that you've given to us. We find joy in knowing you and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.